You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health podcast. I have Kelly Whalen. She's an assistant professor at Temple University in the area of pathology and laboratory medicine. We're going to be talking about um, esophageal issues, pathologies, etc. So, Kelly, thanks for coming. Thank you for inviting me to join your program. I really appreciate it. Yeah, if you would tell me about uh, your work and your research. What's it involved? Yeah, of course. So my program is focused on understanding the biology of the esophagus. So basically what we want to know is how the esophagus stays normal under homeostatic conditions and then how those pathways that help to maintain normal biology go awry in the context of different disease states. Um, we, we basically focus in this lab on both cancer as well as food allergy in the esophagus. And just for people that, you know, I always think, I have to think for a second, trachea versus esophagus. <laughs> but I think of like P-H-A-G, phago, or like eating or engulfing. So uh, the esophagus is the tube where the food goes through to your stomach, right? That is correct. It's the tube that connects the mouth to the stomach. And that's pretty much the most thought that anyone ever gives to it until you actually have problems with that. So what, what kind of problems uh, do people have that affects them there? I find the esophagus to be an incredibly interesting organ because I come from the background of cancer biology. And in the esophagus, there are actually two different forms of cancer that can occur. The first is esophageal squamous cell carcinoma, which I'll call ESCC. And that is cancer as you typically think of cancer. And what I mean by that is the cells that, the epithelial cells that are part of the esophagus undergo malignant transformation. So they go from being normal to being abnormal in response to genetic insults and also environmental insults and the genetics of the individual. So there are some genetic things that will predispose you to it as well. So that's ESCC. But another type of cancer develops there as well, and it's called esophageal adenocarcinoma, or EAC. This is really interesting in that it doesn't arise directly from the esophageal epithelial cells, but those cells are actually displaced in response to acid reflux, which of course many people here in the United States know of and have um, 
experience with, unfortunately. But in response to that reflux coming from the lower part of your GI tract into your esophagus, the esophagus isn't used to dealing with that type of environment. So it actually becomes much more like the intestine, and this is called metaplasia. And that tissue change is actually the context in which esophageal adenocarcinoma develops. So I find that to be extraordinarily interesting about this organ. And then in addition to those types of cancer, there's also types of esophagitis, so inflammation in the esophagus that occur. So I mentioned with acid reflux, you'll have esophagitis. There's a separate type of esophagitis termed eosinophilic esophagitis, and this is a type of food allergy that is clinically characterized by the presence of eosinophils, but manifests in the form of trouble swallowing, trouble eating, um, which is very similar to what you would see in someone with gastroesophageal reflux disease or GERD. Um, but again, those types of inflammation are very different if you look at them at the molecular level, and while um, acid reflux predisposes you to the development of that metaplasia and esophageal cancer. Patients with eosinophilic esophagitis don't seem to develop cancer from what we know. So again, coming from it, from the background of a cancer biologist, why that might happen is something that I'm incredibly interested in exploring. I guess chronic exposure to stomach acid can cause the esophagus to uh the cells to change in such a way that they turn cancerous. Is that what you're saying? That's yes, one of the mechanisms? Yes, exactly. What's, um, what's local, like what's hyperlocal to the esophagus? I guess the, the trachea, the entrance to the trachea is there, the epiglottis, perhaps the, I mean, you, you know, you know better than me, but what structures are right there and how are they affected? Uh, so you can see eosinophilic esophagus. So basically when you look at these two types of cancer, they occur most often in two different locations in the esophagus, whereas you at the junction between the stomach and the esophagus, that's where you're going to have your acid reflux and you're going to have the development of that cancer that occurs there, esophageal adenocarcinoma. By contrast, esophageal squamous cell carcinoma occurs higher up often in the esophagus, and EOE is typically also in the more proximal part of the esophagus, so closer to your mouth. And you can also have involvement there of the surrounding tissues, but my focus is primarily on what happens in the esophagus itself. So how are the, um, again, is the epiglottis or the sphincter where the, you know, the esophagus enters the stomach affected in any of these cancers? or? or no? Yeah, that I don't know. Oh, okay. <laughs> <more to> <laughs> Sorry, it's just no, not my area of expertise. Maybe we can okay. edit that out. <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, so, I mean, what are some of your suspicions on why uh, cancer would occur? You know, these various cancers would occur. Like, what, what's your first thought process? Where has it gone to to try to figure this out? So, something that is very interesting in this um, as well is the fact that there is, first of all, all of these diseases are very male biased. So, why that happens remains a mystery, but all these esophageal diseases that I mentioned are very much more prevalent in males as compared to females. Something additionally is that there is a racial and ethnic bias in these things, 
Whereas in the United States here, as I mentioned, we have lots of acid reflux, and then that predisposes people to esophageal adenocarcinoma. We also here tend to see a lot of eosinophilic esophagitis. But that is very kind of not prevalent when you look at places like East Asia and Northern Africa, where you just don't see these types of cancer or that type of eosinophilic esophagitis. What you actually see is esophageal squamous cell carcinoma. So something that my lab is interested in is the fact that your mitochondria, and you may not know this, but your mitochondria are not all created equal when you look amongst different individuals. So you actually have a mitochondrial haplotype that is associated with your ethnic and racial background. So it's believed that there was an original mitochondria that has since evolved over time, and that kind of can tell you different things. That has happened along with the um, kind of evolution of different racial backgrounds. So what's given the, uh, that we... Oh, what's ahead. the version about different mitochondria? Do they have a different morphology or do they uh, produce energy differently? Like what, what are some of the differences? So there are actually many differences. When we talk about haplotype, we're really talking about the fact that so your mitochondria has its own DNA. And again, this is something that many people just don't think about, but it's true. And you get your mitochondrial DNA from your mother, and then your mitochondrial haplotype is actually referring to just specific regions of that DNA and how when you look at those sequences, they have evolved as we as humans have evolved. And there are, again, associated differences with function and things like that. But how that really relates to disease is just beginning to be explored. Okay. Uh, what about the number of mitochondria? Is there like a big difference between ethnicities? And I'm so glad that you asked that. So looking at different ethnicities, I'm actually not sure about that, but something that my lab has become very interested in is in the context of eosinophilic esophagitis, EOE, we do see that patients with that disease have an increase in their mitochondria. And something that we've begun to explore, so one major issue with any esophageal disorder is that in order to diagnose that disease or to monitor, so if you want to see if the disease is progressing or if someone has responded to therapy, these patients have to undergo endoscopy. Endoscopy involves general anesthesia, which of course comes with some inherent risks, and it's also not a cheap procedure. So there are financial associations with the use of endoscopy as well. And so something that we are very interested in the field of esophageal biology is to find out, are there non-invasive ways for us to determine whether an individual has a disease or not even for diagnosis potentially, but if they, we know they have that disease, again, have they responded to therapy or are they progressing? And in eosinophilic esophagitis, we see that increase in the epithelium of the patient, so in their actual esophageal tissue. But very interestingly, if we look at the serum from these patients, we have some data suggesting that there's also increased mitochondria in their circulation. And that might be a way for us to determine, A, does someone have EOE as compared to not having it or potentially having reflux disease? And then B, is someone responding to therapy when we come in with things? So EOE is an allergic disorder, and you can treat that with either steroids or the removal of the food antigen. And we'd like to see if mitochondrial DNA in the serum can help us to do that without the need for endoscopy. What about the um, microbiome of the esophagus, the upper and lower part? Have, have you looked at that, and have you seen that it, if it does have its own microbiome? And 
if it varies between ethnicities or conditions? No. So a collaborator of mine, Amanda Muir at CHOP, has looked at the microbiome in eosinophilic esophagitis, and they have found that there are changes in specific types of bacteria that are present there. And other groups have done this in the context of various diseases as well. Of course, this is a very big area of interest, and you can imagine that the esophagus is going to have various different microorganisms that are present. Um, in thinking about that, though, could we potentially utilize that to improve therapy is a question. Are there differences in race? And that is something that I don't think anyone has explored in the context of the esophagus. We actually are trying to get access to a number of samples from a large consortium of patients with eosinophilic esophagitis to really start to characterize whether race has any impact on things like disease presentation. So do these patients have differences based on their race on whether their duration of disease is different or their endoscopic findings are different, response to therapy. And that is something that we just don't have yet. But along with some of that clinical data, this consortium also has molecular data. So not only do they present differently, but can we understand why individuals based on their race or ethnicity may have these differences? And you think about it, you can say, okay, there might be races who have an exacerbated disease, and of course we'd want to understand that. But something that could also happen is you could see some individuals from one ethnic background have a disease that's not progressing. And that is really interesting because then we could study the biology of that and try and apply that to the groups overall, regardless of race and ethnicity. What about uh, diet? I would think that diet would probably be a huge modulator because all the foods you eat, you know, pass through the esophageal uh, tube. Yes, exactly. So the esophagus is kind of your first line defense, right, against not only food, but all the things that come with it. So, of course, as we're now aware, there are so many carcinogens in everything. I mentioned allergens. All, your esophagus is going to keep those things out. So in your diet, of course, you want to minimize your exposure to things that are going to predispose you to an allergen if you are an allergic person. So in eosinophilic esophagitis, these patients, you can sometimes identify their food trigger and remove that. But then when you think about something like gastroesophageal reflux disease and esophageal adenocarcinoma, again, occurring at the lower part of the esophagus where you have an interaction with the stomach happening there in response to reflux, um, that's actually associated with central adiposity. So when you think about what you eat, of course, if you eat bad things or too many things, you can get that fat in your stomach. And that fat in your stomach is doing all kinds of things. So we think hormonally that could be infect affecting the progression of this disease, but also mechanically. Because if you have that pressure from all of that extra fat that's present in your abdomen, that actually might be contributing to the reflux that's occurring. So your diet in many different ways can actually potentially impact these types of disorders. What about the tissue of the esophagus itself? Does it become fatty in certain people or no? You know, I actually don't know if that happens, but I was just approached about a collaboration to look at the impact of applying fat to esophageal epithelial cells and seeing how that impacts their ability to form a barrier and maintain a barrier. So that's something that another group is working on and we are kind of assisting them with. 
any correlation upstream of you, you know, with dental health cavities, et cetera, because, you know, when you eat food, for instance, uh, the oral bacteria get entrained in that food and then they come down the esophagus, for instance, and perhaps with uh, poor oral health or different oral health, maybe that correlates with what the esophagus sees. Yes, and that is absolutely true. That does happen. So it's been shown that changes in the oral microbiome can actually affect the risk that you have for developing different types of cancer. And um, one group is looking at the effect of an oral mouthwash on the microbiome in the context of esophageal adenocarcinoma and gastroesophageal reflux disease. That would be one way that would be phenomenal. Again, it would be very simple and it wouldn't hopefully impact many other things. It would be a helpful way to help deal with that type of disorder. But these things are really in their infancy now. And I think in the coming years, we're going to see, so now we know that, yes, the oral microbiome and the esophageal microbiome are influencing these things and potentially the lower part of the GI tract as well. That microbiome could be changing. But now the next question is not just characterizing it, but how can we modulate it? And how does that modulation really impact the disease progression or response to therapy? And that I think we will again see in the coming years. How uh, prevalent is either the different types of esophageal cancer? Is it a rare cancer or is it common? It depends on where you're looking at. So here, they overall are not the most common types of cancer. Again, So you mentioned several types of esophageal cancer. I probably can't pronounce them as well as you can. But uh, how how prevalent are these different types? Are Are they rare? Are they common? Yes, that's a great question. So esophageal cancer is not one of the most common cancers. What I will say is that it is amongst the most deadly types of cancer. And when I talk about esophageal cancer there, I'm using an umbrella term to talk about both esophageal squamous cell carcinoma and esophageal adenocarcinoma, um, which is typically how people talk about these things, although we know they're very different in epidemiology and also in their molecular characterization. Um, But in terms of their prevalence, it really varies in terms of which part of the world you're looking at. So in, again, if you look at East Africa, I'm sorry, East Asia and Africa, you're going to have a much higher prevalence of esophageal squamous cell carcinoma, whereas here in the United States, you're going to see much more of the adenocarcinoma. Are there any other correlations that uh, have been observed in looking at, you know, thousands of cases? You said race definitely seems to be possibly an indicator diet may be a huge modulator. Any other, whether they're unusual or not, but any other uh, correlations that seem to affect it? So anything else that would impact your risk, different risk factors, is that what you're asking? Right. Risk and actual incidence. Are there any other, uh, you know, does it happen more in men than women, old than young, uh, yeah. certain circumstances? So- Yeah, so cancer overall, and that's not true for every cancer, but most of all, it's a disease of age, and esophageal cancer is no exception, typically happening in about the sixth decade of life. So there's absolutely a correlation with age. These cancers are much more common in men as compared to women. There are also some very interesting risk factors that have been identified. So the um, consumption of hot beverages is something that in the Asian culture, is very common. And there, the consumption of those hot beverages has been associated with increased risk for esophageal squamous cell carcinoma. Now, if that is kind of 
a heat-mediated damage response that then can cause genetic damage. Again, we don't really know the molecular mechanisms that are mediating that, but there are for sure um, correlations in terms of risk there. Well, a hot drink may not cause genetic damage, but it could cause an inflammatory response and you know, somewhat damage the cells or just cause an inflammatory response. So that yes, happens exactly. every day for years. And, you know. Over and over again, exactly. And I think it's really important for us to understand the inflammatory response in the context of all of this. So I mentioned that esophageal um, adenocarcinoma is associated with esophagitis. It is. GERD, um, gastroesophageal reflux disease is GERD, um, you have reflux, you have inflammation, and then you, you have that change in the tissue. The tissue then becomes a more intestinalized metaplasia, and you have the development of cancer. So in terms of inflammation, I think that's a very good point. Something that we know is that the inflammatory profiles that occur in the context of those two types of esophagitis that I mentioned are very different. So if you look at someone with acid reflux, they have what's termed a TH1 type response. That's a type of immune response that is initiated there. That gastroesophageal reflux disease, acid reflux, will then allow for the development of a premalignant lesion that can then become esophageal adenocarcinoma. By contrast, patients with eosinophilic esophagitis have often chronic long-standing inflammation that is Th2-based. So Th2 is a type of inflammation that's associated often with allergic responses. And these patients don't seem to develop cancer. So the question that my lab is very interested in addressing is, it's one thing if these patients don't develop cancer, but it's another thing if they're actually protected in some way from cancer. And determining how the TH2 response may actually be mediating some kind of protection is a really interesting idea. And this is not just based on the esophagus. So individuals with allergies have been shown in many epidemiological studies to have a um, decreased risk for development of different types of cancer. So this inverse correlation between allergy and cancer has long been kind of established in human populations, but we're really not sure about how that might work. And you can imagine, if you can determine that this type of inflammation is protective, that could be very powerful, potentially for prevention. And then also, if you have a response that is anti-tumor, if you could induce that maybe with another kind of therapy, you could actually improve the efficacy of currently available therapeutic strategies as well. Well, you know, what's good is that if you were to try to medicate the esophagus, you can drink, let's say, a medicated liquid and it'll get to it pretty much unaltered. You can have an immediate quick access path to it. So perhaps that's a good mechanism by which to coat the esophagus with some kind of material to help it if it's in an inflamed state or, you know, to treat it. It just seems like in, in one way it's very accessible. Yeah, it's something that we take advantage of clinically. So in the context of patients who are taking, in taking treatments that you want to target to the esophagus, you can give it to them in a slurry. So you can kind of slow down the transit through the esophagus and help those. So for instance, with steroid treatment, help them coat the esophagus and have that impact on the tissue that you want to target, which might be much more difficult if you're talking about an organ that's kind of more embedded in your body. 
So, yes, that's something that we're certainly thinking about and trying to leverage that accessibility, as you mentioned. It's also a fantastic thing from the research perspective because although I mentioned endoscopy is something that is not fun for patients and also is expensive, it is routinely used. So we do get a lot of access to human tissues, which, again, talking about something that's deeper within your body, you wouldn't have access to that. So I really appreciate that and, of course, all of the patients who volunteer to enroll in our studies. I know this is probably a basic question, but is the esophagus where peristalsis happens to move food along? And if, if so, are there different transit times for different kinds of foods, even at this stage of digestion? That's a very interesting question. I am not the person to address it. So I can tell you peristalsis happens in the esophagus and you can actually measure swallowing. I'm not a clinician, so I don't do that myself, but they can look at transit through the esophagus. And I know this because our group is very interested in how the esophagus changes with age. So one of the main complaints that people see as um, patients come in who are older is they have some issue with swallowing or eating. And um, we have some data that the epithelial tissue of the esophagus does change with age. And we want to determine how that might be impacting things like as you mentioned earlier, cancer incidence decreases with age. We also know that eosinophilic esophagitis is going to go from an inflammatory phenotype to a fibrotic phenotype with age. So how is the epithelium contributing to that? And something that I maybe haven't kind of brought up yet is I talk about the epithelium a lot because I'm in epithelial biology, but there are also other types of cell types that are present in the esophagus. So when you think about things like motility or movement through the esophagus, nerves are going to be involved with that. Um, all of this probably holistically is going to be affected, but we're really interested in that epithelial biology and how that changes during the course of age and different disease conditions. What, um, what, what do you see as some upcoming possible breakthroughs in treatment of um, esophageal cancers? Anything on the horizon that looks promising? Um, hmm, that's a good question. I think the microbiome modulation is something that really could become important as we kind of progress in looking at esophageal cancer therapy. Um, in terms of the adenocarcinoma, which is developing when you have gastroesophageal reflux disease, one thing that I mentioned to you is this metaplasia occurs. That metaplasia is termed Barrett's esophagus. There is a term for that. Um, and when you have this condition, Barrett's esophagus, it does predispose you to cancer, but not everyone progresses to cancer. And one of the key questions in the field is, can we find out who is going to progress and who is not going to progress? Because you can imagine then those people who are likely not to progress will be monitored and treated very differently than those who we know have a high affinity towards progression. And I think that that is something, if we can find that out, is going to have a big impact in terms of how these types of patients are treated. Why is um, <clears throat> esophageal cancer so deadly? Maybe it's a stupid question, but is it because no, of metastasizes? It's a great question. It is a great question. Um, this type of disease is very deadly for several reasons. One is there's frequent metastasis, as you mentioned. There's also going to be just an inherent lack of response to existing therapies. 
So when you think about something like breast cancer, there are targeted therapies that are known to work there. So independent of things like chemotherapy and radiation therapy, which are very broad, you can say, I know that there's overexpression of a particular receptor. And I can target that receptor, and we can hopefully resolve the tumor. And those have been pretty effective. Uh, but in the context of esophageal squamous cell carcinoma, about 25% of the patients have EGF receptor. That actually might be an underestimation. A large portion of these patients are going to have EGF receptor. So a particular receptor that we know, it's epidermal growth factor receptor. We know that it's up in these patients. But therapies targeted to that, don't have an effect like they do in breast cancer where those types of therapies are also used when you put them into patients with esophageal squamous cell carcinoma. Why? We don't know why that's happening. If you think about that very basically, this should, this should work, but it doesn't. So understanding mechanisms of resistance is something that is one of those things when you mentioned, like how can we figure out what the next thing is that's going to make a change, that's one thing. If we can figure out why these are so resistant, not only to these targeted therapies, as I mentioned, because there are none that are FDA approved right now, but things like chemo and radiation, patients just tend not to respond that well to them. Another thing is these diseases are typically going to be diagnosed at a late stage. So people will come in with esophageal cancers when they have trouble eating, trouble swallowing, and by that point, your tumor is pretty far progressed usually. So as we know in cancer biology, if you can catch something earlier, that's much better. But that just doesn't tend to happen in these types of cancer. Well, very good. Um, what's the best way for people to find out more, you know, and to look at research papers or check out what you're doing? Oh, sure. So I am on both Instagram um, and Twitter at at Lab Whalen, and um, I also am amenable to being contacted via email as well. So on the Temple um, page, there is going to be my email address, and I am incredibly excited to have any opportunity to talk about my research. So if anyone wants to reach out to me, please do. That's great, Kelly. Thank you for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you.